Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to episode 67 of the Intercooler podcast, everybody. Uh, This week we're talking about cancelled cars, the promising cars that for one reason or another, didn't make it into production. Um, Andrew, we're not necessarily talking about concept cars, show cars. Um, it's the stuff that got a bit closer than that. It's certainly, yeah, I mean, it depends what you mean by a concept car. It's one of those sort of nebulous terms, isn't it? You know, a concept car could be something which is completely and utterly mad and, 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 and can't move and clearly never will move. And it's just a pure design study. Um, you know, some manufacturers... You literally use the phrase concept just to showcase their, 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 their forthcoming production cars and there'll be a production car, a concept car shown and then it goes into production, you know, a year later and you can barely tell the difference between the two. So it's, you know, it's, it, it's a huge variance in the definition of the word. But no, so we're, we're just going to be talking about cool cars that for one reason or another, maybe because um, they were never intended for production, but we think they should have been made or were absolutely intended for production, but got canned usually by people wearing suits with calculators in their hands, um, you know, before they ever made it to a, to a showroom. Um, so it's going to be fun, I think. Yeah. And uh, some of these were properly slated for productions. You know, they have running prototypes built. Some of them we may have driven ourselves. So there's some good stuff in there. Um, and this is all inspired by a piece that Peter Robinson wrote for the Intercooler app. Um, about the Audi Quattro Spider, um, which was a car. It was, it was a, a concept. There were prototypes built, um, and ultimately, it never made production. Uh, it was, I mean, it's a fantastic looking thing, isn't it? Um, yeah. And it was really, it was Audi's first sort of ground up um, sports car. That's what yeah. it was intended to be. Yeah, because I mean, they'd done, they'd obviously before, so this was 30 years ago, this is 1991. Um, 10 years previous to that, they'd done the Quattro. Um, but that was, you know, very much the sort of, you know, a jazzed up coupe, you know, front engine and, and everything else. But this was a proper mid-engine two-seat sports car. Um, and I won't spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen it on the app yet. Um, but the reasons, it, I mean, there are a few reasons it didn't make it. But that, I mean, they, they weren't all just cold, hard, um, you know, financials. Um, there was a bit of um, 
emotional pressure, shall we put it, um, involved in it. And I just find it fascinating that, you know, in, in, in the... Um, in the very hard-nosed world of car making that, you know, literally, you know, a mum turning to a son and making a comment can, you know, sometimes spell the difference between, you know, something like a car making it or not making it. Um, and, and it goes back actually to that, uh, another piece that Ben Oliver wrote for us on the app about dynasties and the way that families uh, in car makers, you know, all over the world from, you know, from Ford in America to BMW in Europe to uh, Hyundai in uh, in Korea, South Korea, um, how the, the influence of the family still pervades. Uh, I find it fascinating. But um, yeah, anyway, um, great cars which never made it is what we're here to talk about today. That's right. And the Audi Quattro Spider probably does qualify as one of those. It, it was a promising thing. Mid-engine coupe. It had a removable roof panel, uh, which sort of made sense of the Spider name. Um yeah, four-wheel drive, 2.8-litre V6, 170-odd horsepower. Uh, it was small, it was light, it got canned. Um, and, yeah, if you want to go find out why, it's on the app. There's a great yeah. piece by Peter Robinson. But, but I mean, uh, somebody on the app wrote, um, why didn't you say that it was the inspiration for the Audi R8? Uh, and Peter quite rightly <laughs> responded, because it wasn't. Um, but even so, you think what the R8 did for Audi's um, reputation is perception around the world um, and yet here you know thick end of 20 years earlier was a car which would have done the same um, yeah I mean you know the, the, the whole I mean road, Audi's been a very successful um, story but the whole roadmap I think would have looked distinctly different if they'd taken a different decision with that car because people's perception of Audi would have changed 20 years before it did mm. yeah Good. Um, all right, well, let's move on then. There, there are lots of examples, uh, and I think one of the great ones, and there are many reasons why I think this is a great one, partly because we were told it would make production, 250 or so cars built, um, and there were several different versions, several different prototypes, different concepts, different powertrains. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting story, and the, the closer you look, the sort of more interesting it becomes, and it's, it, it seems like a pity um, that this car never made it into production. Uh, and I'm talking about the Jaguar CX-75. Um, and, and I'm going to frighten you all by saying now that it was 11 years ago that we first saw that car. <laughs> it's it was in 2010, it? wasn't it? Yeah. It was a 2010 car. Um, yeah. And, I mean, it was so ahead of its time, actually, that prototype. You, th- you think where the world has gone since and just how it saw so much of what was coming all the way back then. You're absolutely right. So the, originally it had a, a, such a bizarre powertrain, actually, particularly for the time. Um, electric motors, four electric motors, uh, one on each wheel, but with two diesel-powered gas turbine engines um, to generate the electricity to drive those motors. Um, it had around 800 horsepower, um, 0 to 60 in two and a half seconds, Looks fantastic still, doesn't it, the yeah, CX-75? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, they, they ultimately canned it because it, this was around the, um, the P1 918 LaFerrari era, just a, sort of a couple of years before that, wasn't it? Uh, what did they say in the end? Was it just that they, they, the market conditions weren't right? They didn't, they didn't think they could sell the, yeah, the number I, of units? Yeah, I, 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 I think it probably was. I've, said, I'm, I've misunderstood the car. I thought I, I thought those turbines were range extenders. I thought that they were... Well, um, yeah. They, they were ultimately, yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Fine. Good. I'm glad, I'm glad about that. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think you know you have to look with all these things. You have to look at the context, and you have to look back, particularly to how badly burned Jaguar got with the SJ220. Um, and I think that there was a sort of new reality at Jaguar, where you know, unless something like that could absolutely be guaranteed to succeed, um, then it wasn't. And and also, you know, in engineering terms, I mean, I can remember talking to the guys at the time and they said, yeah, well, and I said, you know, we, we really do think we can do it. And again, what, turbines? Really? <laughs> um, and they said, well, we may have to change this, we may have to change that. And as you say, it went through various different iterations and specifications. Um, to me, it was, it was knowing where Jaguar was positioned in the market, uh, and to an extent still is today, it just struck me as being, you know, a leap too far, um, and it outstretched the the capabilities of what the the brand could do uh, at the time. And as you say, with all the other things that were, you know, coming on stream, and which they probably knew about, because okay, this would this did predate um, the LaFerrari and the nine eighteen uh, and the P one, but you know, we we all knew about them at the time. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and I think that they could probably just see it all happening again. You know, there's XG220 back then. Well, there was, you know, McLaren F1s and Bugatti EV110s and, you know, all these incredibly um, exotic, you know, Ferrari F50s. And, you know, and the XG20 kind of sank without trace in the um, in the face of that kind of competition. And, and, and I think they just saw it happening all over again and just thought, we don't need this. And that was the end of it. Yeah, there was an, a later version of that car that ditched the turbines and it had... A turbocharged and supercharged 1.6 liter engine, again with the the electric motors. So they toyed around with it for a while, didn't they? They were trying to figure out the best way to to bring this actually very innovative, very pioneering supercar hypercar maybe to market. Um, and ultimately, they canned it in 2012. Um, there was one other version of that car. Oh well, the Spectre car. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure I've spoken about it before. Um, so Williams, and actually it was the Williams. The engineering division of the Williams F1 team um, had worked on that project, I think, from day one. And it was the same division that built a handful. I think it was five space frame cars dressed up to look like CX-75s with uh, the Jaguar supercharged V8 plonked in the middle. Um, I'm sure I've spoken about it before on the podcast, but I, I got to drive one of them um, out in Mexico. Uh, and it was it was just fantastic. I mean, totally unrepresentative of what the CX-75 was supposed to be <laughs> yes, to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's a, it's a lightweight space frame car with a stonking great motor in the middle um, and no regulations for it to comply with. And it was just fantastic fun to drive. And the, the whole point about stunt cars is that they're built to be tough as old boots. They're solid. You can't break them. They also have um, suspension travel because they need to, you know, they drive over uneven ground, rattle down steps as the, the, the stunt car does in that, that Bond film, Spectre. Um, and so they're, they're just interesting things to drive. And of course, they have no, uh, no driver assistance systems whatsoever. Um, and so actually, they're about as pure and as stripped back a driving machine as it's possible to get. I, I loved it. It was a good thing. Um, right, okay, let's have, let's have another one of yours. Uh, and then I'll jump into one of mine. Okay, I'm going to go for the Lamborghini Estoc. Okay. okay. Four-door. Four-door. Um, 2008, I think. Uh, around then, certainly. Um, yeah, I mean, this predates the Euros um, hugely. Um, but I just thought it was a... It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, a Ferrari had tried... You know, Ferrari has 
to date, and we know that they will, but to date, Ferrari has never produced a four-door car. Um, but they tried, they had a concept, which was a great-looking thing, um, called the Pinin, uh, which was, I think that would have been mid-70s. Um, and that was a, a serious look at a four-door proper long-distance executive express from Ferrari. Uh, but I actually think, I think Lamborghini did it better um, in, um, yeah, in, in, in 2008. And it was just a, it was a great looking. It was, it was almost kind of like the Espada was back in the, uh, in the early seventies. It just showed that, you know, the form and function don't need, don't need to be mutually exclusive, um, goals and that you can have a fantastic looking car, which is practical. And I, I remember seeing this and, and I know that car got really, really close to production. Um, and yeah, I mean, maybe it was a smart move to kill it because the whole SUV thing was, yeah. uh, was coming and maybe that's why they did it. Maybe they actually thought, oh, no, actually this is, the, this, this might be a cool car, but it's actually the wrong kind of car for, um, for its era. Um, but, uh, you know, it had a big V10 up the front and four doors and, you know, there wasn't a lot about it, which you wouldn't, which you didn't like. Um, so yeah, a bit sad that that didn't make it. Um, well, the whole time that you've been talking about the Lamborghini S-Stock, I've been thinking about the Ferrari Pin-In. Because yeah. I, I just, when you mentioned it, I just had to Google um, to have a look at a couple of pictures. It does not look like you would imagine, or certainly not me. Um, it's, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with this car, just go and Google it, everybody. Ferrari Pin-In. Um, it looks remarkable. What a pity that thing never got built. Yeah. They, was that a serious... Uh, ever a serious consideration or just a I, I think it depends who you talk to you know I don't think given how you know, small a company Ferrari was back then um, even though it had Fiat money I don't think that you would go and build a car that looks as finished as that um, with no intention of ever doing anything with it I think it was a serious study but sometimes you know so many times with these cars the only way you you can find out whether it should be built or not is to literally go and build one and then go and show it to lots of people and say, you know, would you buy one? And then, and, and, and then once you get the answer to that, then you decide whether to proceed with it or not. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, it, my, my belief is that it was absolutely built um, with the intention that should um, the research come back positively, that it would get built. And I'm guessing that it didn't. And so that was that. It is interesting, isn't it, that both Lamborghini and Ferrari ultimately did end up building four or five door cars but they were suvs that are a suv or will be an suv yeah yeah that's just sort of indicative isn't it of which way the market went um and has gone and is going sadly um okay right let me just before we go any further i just want to tell you a little bit about the app the intercooler app um most recently we've published a piece by karen chandock on nature versus nurture in racing drivers are great drivers born or made um, and he has some interesting views on it I, I suppose one of the central points that he makes is that we look at and perhaps it's Lewis Hamilton it started with him um, but certainly we've seen it with Max Verstappen and some of the young, younger guys they're actually coached and groomed to be racing drivers from that high aren't they from three four years old five years old they're they're sort of in training to become racing drivers and so though they might have enormous talent there is a huge level of nurture going on there. Um, and so Karen just sort of explores that stuff in the piece. Um, 
And I thought it was very, very interesting because he, what, what he does is he sort of takes us through history um, and back to the days when, um, you know, you just had to make it on your own. And then comparing that to, you know, the days of Senna and Schumacher where people would come up through karting and that sort of thing. And then comparing that to the modern day where, you know, F1 teams have their own driver academies and, they aim, and their aim is to snare these people from as young as age as possible. But there, to me, the really interesting case is Max because he's got the best of all worlds because not only has he clearly got a supreme natural talent, but he is being nurtured by his dad. Mm. Yeah? Also, we should mention his mum. Yeah who was um, a world-class kart racer. Yeah. So, so the people who provided the nature, the genes, yeah. Yeah, are also the people who are now doing the nurture. So he's just getting like a double dose of it. Um, so, um, yeah, it's a good piece. Uh, okay, and elsewhere, um, Henry, Henry Catchpole. So you, you might have seen for all the Carfection YouTube channel, he's been, he drove uh, the three sort of 90s hypercars, the McLaren F1, the Porsche 911 GT1 and the Mercedes CLK GTR. Um, he made a lovely series of films for Car Affection and he's writing about those cars for us as well. Um, there's some great photography in there. I did speak to Henry about this and he absolutely believes that those three cars have never been assessed, shot, driven together by anyone before. It's, 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 it, it, is, you know, it, it is unique. Um, so if you've not seen it, do go take a look. It's a three-parter. The first part is up there now, and the second two parts are well on their way. Um, and, okay, I'll tell you about one more piece. It's by David Tuig, who's our, <coughs> he's our tame car engineer. Um, and he, he just he writes stuff, and I tweeted this. He writes stuff that, certainly not without a whole ton of research, journalists can't really write because you need the insight of someone who has worked in car engineering for decades, decades, to to be as expansive, to be as insightful um, as, as he is. And most recently, he's written about the cost of taking weight out of a car. Um, and actually, it, it comes down to a, a fairly straightforward calculation, doesn't it? If they can remove a kilogram for less than X number of pounds, they'll do it. If it's going to cost more than that, they just won't do it. Um, and he, and he, he explains why that calculation is different with electric cars um, and why that is one of the reasons that electric cars are are heavy. Um, yeah, I, I, I always just thought it was because oh, you know, batteries weigh a lot, and and, that, and therefore they have no choice but to be heavy. But it's not. It's a if you go and look at it, it, there's so much more to that, and it just comes down to a pure financial calculation. Um, and basically, electric cars could be so much lighter than they are, but there is no financial incentive to make them that way. So they're not. Um, and, you know, next time a car manufacturer wails at me, so oh, well, it, you know, it weighs two tons because it has to because it's electric. Um, <laughs> you know, I've got to have at the back of it. Well, actually, no, it's not. It weighs two tons. It's electric, but it weighs two tons because that's the way you choose it to be. Quite fascinating right. Fascinating piece. It is fascinating. Yeah, go and check it out. Um, okay, let me give you another one of mine. Go on. Um, and this is one that I actually drove. Uh, and they, they were deadly serious about making... or I. They gave the impression of being deadly serious about making this thing. It might have just been a PR exercise from day one and annoyingly they got a load of PR out of it and so maybe they consider it a job done. But this is Renault Sport. Um, and a few years ago, they put the two-litre turbo engine from the Megane into the Clio. Um, they gave it wider tracks, a bit of an aero kit, 
um, Cup 2 tyres, uh, and they called it the Renault Sport Clio RS16. Um, it looked fantastic. It had a manual box, 275 horsepower, um, and the diff as well from, uh, from the Megane. So Megane drivetrain, Clio body with modifications, wider track, aero, and so on. I drove it on a small test track, um, and it was really good fun to drive. It was really quick, very capable. Um, I think the trouble is it would have cost a small fortune um, to buy one, to buy a production car. Um, and, you know, if it was, I don't know, maybe it would have been 30, 30 plus thousand pounds. Is it special enough for that money? It probably isn't. And when you look at what Toyota has done more recently with the GR Yaris, um, you know, besp- almost, a, well, it is a bespoke shell, isn't it? Um, that ripping little three-part engine, four-wheel drive. I think probably the, the RS16 would have been made to look a bit daft by, um, by the GI Yaris. Um, it, it's, what I like about Renault is that from time to time, and I, I just don't think it'll happen again, but over the years they have done really daft things, particularly with yeah. their performance cars. Um, and the fact that they couldn't make a business case for a, Megane, for a Clio with a Megane engine um, is, it makes it all the more extraordinary that they ever put the V6 Clio into production. <laughs> is it, doesn't it? It just makes you think, how did that ever get the green light? Yeah, and two generations of it as well. Yeah, um, they did yeah. it again. <laughs> can, can I go to the completely the other end of the spectrum now? Go on, let's go no, for this a is a, this, this is a car that um, some people may not have heard of. Um, but all I can tell you is that at the time when it was I mean, we, we were told it was going to make, be built. This was no concept. And if you go and look at it, you'll be amazed that this was actually intended for production. Um, we were just going, oh, my goodness, this is just going to, you know, this is going to change everything. I'm talking about the Yamaha OX99-11. Mean anything to you? Right, I'm going to have to Google this one as well. Yamaha okay, OX99. Yeah, go and have a look. Stick it in, see what you think. Okay, while Dan's doing that, this was a... Crikey. Uh, Yes, crikey, yeah. <laughs> so this was this was before the McLaren F1. This was about the same time as the Jaguar XG20. This was a Yamaha. Um, it had a carbon tub. So it would have been um, the first production car with a carbon tub in it. Uh, it had a tandem two-seat bodywork, yeah. It had a canopy door. So literally the front of the car just flipped open. That was the only way to get in and get out. Um, and it came with a three and a half litre V12 Formula One engine. <laughs> wow. I mean, wow. I mean, wouldn't that have just been absolutely astonishing? God, well, I feel like we've been robbed of this thing now. Yeah, well, we were. I mean, imagine, well, I imagine how I felt at the time. Wow. I mean, it's, it, was, so that, it was a two-seater. Yeah, it was a tandem. One behind the other. Bloody hell. It's got a big old air scoop on top. A weird floating sort of wing section across the nose. Wow. That is an interesting machine. I think they actually built three, and it was, and, and you know, it was just, again, you know, it may or may not have been the right car, but it was certainly the wrong era. I mean, the early nineteen nineties, you know, all those super. They, the McLaren F one failed, the Jaguar XJ two twenty failed, the Chisetta V sixteen T Maroda thing failed, uh, and this failed too. It was, you know, it was, it was. There was a global recession on, and cars like this, frankly, were never gonna make it um because the world was a different place when they got built to how it had been when they were conceived um but i often think back to you know the bonkers cars that did make it into production um and i and i, and I just sort of feel a bit sad that 
the one that in many ways I was most interested to drive didn't. Um, so there, there's the Yamaha OX99. That is an extraordinary looking thing. I'm not Isn't sure it? it's pretty. <laughs> I'm, not no, sure I'm, not sure, I'm not sure it's pretty either, but I mean, it, it looks exciting, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, three and a half litre F1 V12, 1,000 kilograms. That would have been extraordinary to drive. It Manual would. box. Yeah. Uh, well, there we go. I'm, I'm not sure I can rival any of those. Um, although I will offer you, and again, BMW built a prototype, and they're, they're very open about this car, and they. Oh, I know what you're going uh, to say. I know well, what you're going to say. No, you, you might not. Oh, really? <laughs> okay, well, let's see if you do know. What, what am I going to say? Original M8. Well, do you know what? I've got two. That was on my list. But oh! actually, <laughs> first, I was going to talk about the E46 M3 Touring. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And BMW built a running prototype. And there are press shots of it on, on the, the BMW press site. Uh, and so, you know, it's hardly a secret. Um, but that's an interesting proposition, isn't it? The E46 is a great coupe. Um, it would have been a hell of a leap to, to do a touring, given that there wasn't actually a four-door version of, of that M3. Um, but, yeah, I just, I mean, that 3.2-litre straight-six with a manual box and a state body on top. That um, would have been just it, wonderful. It's going to be fairly heavy compared to the, the coupe, isn't it? But, well, imagine how in demand a used one of those would be um, now. Uh, yeah, that would have been quite something. Okay, well, well, it, it, it's only now that they finally got around to doing a, a three series, well, an M3 touring. Yeah, it took them a few years, didn't it? Um, but you're right. So the the first M8 was on my list as well. Um, 1990. Uh, it was going to supposedly it's going to have a Paul Rocher V12 in it, well, 550 it, it, horsepower. Yeah, it, it was. You know, it was essentially. I might get myself into a huge amount of trouble here. My understanding. Gordon Murray happens to be listening to this, is that it was essentially um, certainly very much related to the engine that ended up going into the F1. Um, what I really liked about this car, because it, it, it wasn't just, because, I mean, the the 8 Series um, was quite a sort of fat and, fat and flabby car back then. Um, and it wasn't just, oh, stick a big engine in it and bung an M badge on it. it. It actually, if you looked at what they tried to do with it, um, particularly, I mean, they turned it into a two-seater. Um and put all sorts of lightweight bits in it. They they really did want to do a proper supercar, um, and it would have and it would have been great. Um, and I guess I always look sort of look back when I think of reasons why they didn't do it. Um, and again, you know, there is a there's an elephant in the corner um, in the form of the M1. It's you know it's it's original and today only real supercar. And they got their fingers burnt with that. So um, I, I, I think maybe they thought that originally they could do the M8 as a sort of way of getting into that market without spending anything like the money required to do a bespoke per car. But my understanding is the reason that it got killed is it still ended up being incredibly expensive. I mean, I read something online like it would have had to have cost twice what a Porsche 911 would have cost. Um, and it could never have stood up as a commercial proposition like that. But again, can you imagine that engine? manual gearbox <laughs> yeah it's a pity isn't it this is actually a fairly depressing list all the cars that we've been denied it was always going to um, be wasn't it it was yeah. always going to be i don't think i've really considered that okay well I, I don't feel so bad about the bugatti that you wanted to talk about that was never going to exist in my world um but can you tell us a little bit about you're going to have to pronounce the name for me no 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 you're going to have to pronounce the name 16c and then you can do the second part 
Galibie. Galibie. Okay. Right. Fine. Yeah. Galibie. Um, I thought it was really cool. So this is this is so this is a um, this was you know Bugatti had done the Veyron, um, and we all and we all sitting there thinking, well, what they're going to do next because they spent so much money um, getting that car to market, um, and we just thought, well, they can't just do one car. Um, they're going to have to do something else, particularly with that ridiculous powertrain that they that they spent so much time developing, and then this. Um, front engine four door i guess you call it a saloon um was shown and my memory is that it, although they didn't say we will put this into production my memory was that it was absolutely a, intent on becoming produced and this was like a sort of it was almost like a sort of modern bugatti royale wasn't it this was this was to luxury saloons what the veyron had been to traditional supercars it was just that and you know don't turn it up to 11 turn it and turn it turn it keep going until the dial breaks off in your hand um and yeah how can i say it? i quite liked it <laughs> do, do you know what I, I, was, I was reading about it uh, before we came on and reportedly vw execs killed it because they didn't like the way it looked oh uh, okay so you liked the way it looked did you it interested me it certainly interested me, and um, I, I, and I was surprised that they killed it because it, it, it struck me as being something that you know a, a second. I thought that they they would grow that brand and put it into different areas and different markets, um, and they didn't. Interesting. Well, do you know what? On the topic of Bugatti, um, there's another car, another VW Group car, though it was VW badged, uh, the W12. The uh, okay, so it seemed to have several names: W12 Coupe, W12 Nardo, yeah. W12 Synchro. W12 Roadster, um, but all fundamentally the same car. Um, and I, I say on the topic of, of Bugatti because this was, okay, I had a 12-cylinder engine, but in a W configuration. It was mid-engined, um, all-wheel drive. Do you think that while VW was pondering this, it, it was also thinking about Bugatti, or do you think one inspired the other ultimately? I mean, there, there, is, there are some striking similarities I mean, I don't know, to be honest with you, Dan. I mean, the Bugatti's obviously got 16 cylinders. It came quite a lot later. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's basically, it's the, um, it's the Bentley engine um, or the engine that would um, go on to power Bentleys a uh, couple of years. Uh, would you ever have put a mid-engine? I mean, what it did at Nardo, I mean, it, it went to Nardo and it broke every single road car speed record that there was in 24 hours it did it did t- over averaged inclusive of stops over 200 miles an hour for 24 hours it did thick end of 5,000 miles i mean it, this was <sighs> uh, yeah um, wow yeah exactly but for what they would <laughs> so i mean it's i mean i'm not being a snob here i'm just looking at the sort of commercial realities of of, of, of the way the world is and who would have bought that with a volkswagen badge on it mm. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean that's the reality. So I mean it was it was an amazing thing, and I can but I can remember at, literally at the time I can remember thinking, yeah, but why? What are <laughs> they trying to? What's the purpose of this car? What's it trying to do? Because clearly they're never going to make it, or if they do make it, they'd have to put you know somebody else's badge on it. Um, so yeah, an interesting thing, quite a good looking car, not as good looking in my view as the uh, Audi Quattro Spider we talked about earlier. Um, but I mean, how far? I mean, it's six hundred horsepower. How fast must it have been to be able to average two hundred for twenty-four hours? 
Yeah, I mean, it's you, you need a good margin above 200, don't you, for it to sit at, given that you also have to stop yeah. and refuel it. Well, they must have had a huge time. Can you imagine? You're, you're one of the drivers. So you, let's say to average 200, inclusive of all stops, you've got to sit there at, I don't know, between 210 and 220. Um, you know, I've done, no, that's no, not true. I've done 208 round Nardo. Um, and it's fair to say you've got to have your wits about you. Um, you know, it's, I mean, it's, if you are and you're sensible and you're a stable car, it's kind of fine. But, you know, I went out there and I did like a couple of laps, which doesn't take very long when you're traveling that fast. They would have gone out there and they would have done a whole tank, probably quite a big tank. And so you're going along there and you're doing 210, 220, and really fast. And then you've got to come in. And that sensation, you must have become so used to doing those speeds that you come in for your pit stop. And by the time you're doing about 70, it must feel like you've stopped. I can remember this, actually. This is a bit of a sideline, but I once did some record breaking for Saab at Talladega. Um, and we had to, we were averaging 150 something in whatever they were. Can't remember. Nine threes, nine five, can't remember. But, but being turbocharged whatevers, and we'd just drive around as fast as they possibly can. And the one thing they said to us in our training was um, the one thing you have to watch most is you'll get so used to doing these speeds that when you come into the pits, you know, at best, you're going to overshoot. At worst, you're going to run somebody over. So however slowly you think you should come in, come in much, much slower than that. And still, the first time I came in, I just went straight through the pit because I just wow. got, I'd lost, I'd lost my, all my ability to judge speed. Mm. Um, and, and that was doing 150 something. Imagine you're doing 210 and then suddenly you've got to go from an hour of doing that to nothing. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, but that is put, interesting, uh, isn't it? It's amazing yeah. how quickly the, the mind adapts to, yes, to a higher speed. Yeah, but we've all experienced it. Well, okay, lots of us will have done when you've driven down a runway really quickly, and you, you're hard on the brakes coming towards the end of the runway, um, and you think you're about to stop and open the door, and you're still doing sixty miles an hour. It's the it's the strangest thing, um, yeah, and you describe it very well there. Uh, okay, so this this VW supercar, um, this was in the in the Ferdinand Pieck era era, wasn't it, where he was determined. The Volkswagen could mean much more than people's car, um, and it was it was under his rule that they built uh, the Phaeton. Um, the Phaeton, and, yeah. And uh, you know they they did all sorts of stuff that really you just wouldn't expect of a VW badged car. Um, what do you think was going on there in in PX head? Do you think it was just a halo effect that that he he was aiming yeah. for? Was the I, 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 th- I think I think Pieck, um, I think he probably thought that there wasn't much that if he decided to turn his hand to it, he couldn't do and he couldn't succeed. And I think he thought that the Volkswagen brand, I mean, you know, and, and again, just look at the at the history of it. You know, this was the grandson of Ferdinand Porsche who designed the Beetle. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think he probably thought that Volkswagen could be grown into this massive mega brand and maybe there was some production intent with these things um or, or maybe he was just happy as you say for these cars to be lost leaders um and for you know the stardust that they sprinkled down to sort of you know rain on everything else and and bring them up by association i'm not i'm not really sure but i can remember when the phaeton came out just thinking well i'm sure it's a great car but you know people just aren't going to get out of their mercedes and their bmws into a whatever it would have been a 50 grand Volkswagen at the time even if you do put a you know a, an enormous engine in it which they did um and, and 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 so it proved so i think i think it also proved that um 
no one is infallible, uh, up to and including Ferdinand Pierre. Do you know, there might be another topic to be uh, addressed, another podcast, um, the, the sort of blue-collar brands that have been able to get away with uh, expanding into very, very different territory and make a success of it. Um, oh, God, give me, a, give me a for instance. Ford GT. Yeah, yeah. It's a good call. It's a good call, isn't it? Um, but they, but, but, okay, it wouldn't have worked if they hadn't won Le Mans. Exactly right. That's, yeah. that's what they absolutely had, underpins that car's credibility, isn't it? Exactly. If they just decided, oh, we're going to go and do this car, it would never, ever work. People would have gone, huh? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it needed um, that basis. And we know Toyota are planning to, to do it soon. Yeah. Yeah, and, presu- and presumably Peugeot too. Well, they're going to LMH, aren't they? So presumably they will have to produce um, some kind of road-going car as well. Okay, we'll keep that in our back pocket then. Um, good, okay, well, unless you've got any other cars. Always I do. <laughs> okay, come on now, I don't want to yeah, okay. cut you off mid-flow. No, no, uh, so I'll, I'll be running out of time. No, no. no. I'm getting, no, no okay, so, um, Bentley Java. <laughs> right, okay, let me pull up Google again. <laughs> I wouldn't want anyone to think that we don't plan these podcasts. <laughs> Bentley, oh my goodness me. Oh, it looks like a Chinese knockoff, doesn't it? Oh, don't say that. I love it. <laughs> Again, how have I never heard of this car? What okay, so the Bentley, the Bentley Java was, um, it was basically, it was a Continental GT 10 years before the Continental GT. Um, this was a, the idea was of, of, of making an affordable Bentley. Um, and... I think they built, I mean, the ones, I mean, they did build quite, they actually did build quite a few, but they're all sort of private orders. And I think, you know, I think, I think a stack of them went out to Brunei and places like that. Um, and um, I think they were, I, th- I think certainly the cars that they showed were based on BMW 5 Series. Uh, and I just thought, I thought it was actually a really cool looking car. Um, and I think this was when obviously Bentley had, had a lot of success um well, I mean, I say that um, coming back from you know that period when it had literally just been abandoned, needed rolls, and then we'd have the Mulsanne Turbo R and that sort of thing, and and so Bentley was you know in the ascendance, but it, it had kind of by the mid nineteen nineties, um, they kind of run out of ideas of what to do with it, and the Java was a was a dip in the water just to see what you know what, what else the Bentley brand um, could do, and it just struck me as a shame that. Um, they didn't see it through because so that was 1994 so it was what three years later after that the Volkswagen bought Bentley and the first thing they do is a mid-sized car I mean actually the Continental GT you won't remember this because uh, you were barely alive at the time the Continental GT's um, code name was MSB for mid-sized Bentley and that's the first thing they decided to do um, when Volkswagen bought Bentley um, and actually, I think the Java in 1994 was a really, really credible. I think it was done by a bloke called Roy Axe. Um, credible piece of design. And I personally have uh, liked to have seen it done. Can I give you another one? <laughs> yes, you can. Mini Rocket Man. Yes. You must remember that. I do. And actually, I was talking about it with uh, someone from BMW the other day. This was actually a mini, mini. It was actually a mini, a proper size mini. I, it was like two thirds the size of a of a normal Cooper hatchback, wasn't it? Um, and 
as someone who always just thought that the BMW Minis, however good a lot of them or some of them are, um, I just, you know, I, I just think that they, to an extent and in one regard only, they kind of failed at the first in, in, in absolutely, you know, nicking the brand, but not following the, uh, um, the design genius, the, the inspiration behind it. Um, and they sort of dangled this in front of us and they say, look, you know, here's one we could have done, but decided not to. Um, and I just thought that was a bit of a shame, really. Yeah, so the, I was ta- I, by coincidence, I was talking to somebody about this who knew a bit about it, and um, I think the issue was that it's crash legislation, all that stuff, um, and and th- th- there is a BMW designer who was quoted as saying that at the time that the the concept car was was built, the the materials and the techniques didn't exist to make it um, to make it pass the necessary crash legislation tests because there were. Uh, I guess only very small crumple zones. Um, it was a tiny little thing, really, wasn't it? I think um, it was. I, car- I think it was carbon, wasn't it? Yeah, the actual the actual show car. I think it was, and maybe that was the only way they could get it to crash. But I don't know. Yeah, but it's. I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because there are smaller, much much smaller cars than a mini. Um, yeah. It, so and and, and and there were then. You know, I give you yeah. the Smart Four too, and they, they, that, you know, that that crashed perfectly well. No, I, I, says I, a man I, who I, knows. <laughs> no, um, and no, yeah, so, I would crash as well. <laughs> okay, fine. Um, no, so I don't think I, I, I don't necessarily believe that it, it would have been impossible to get that thing through a crash test. No, um, which and it's a pity, isn't it? Because the idea of actually a properly mini mini um, could have been fantastic, particularly for knocking around town. Maybe if they did a, a hot one. Yeah. Well, it, okay. Unless you've got any others. Yeah, um, I do. Well, yeah. Okay. So there's there's an Audi Quattro concept on there. There's a Mercedes C111 on there. Um, but actually, okay. I'm I'll, I'm only going to talk about one more, only because it's a car that I'm actually quite glad they didn't make. But it is interesting. It is definitely interesting. Um, which is the Porsche 989. Ah, interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're quite right. And Porsche quite recently. Okay, no, go on. Just tell us about the 989. The 989 was a Panamera 20 years before the Panamera. Um, this was a four-door coupe, um, basically with 928 running gear. Um, and, you know, we all saw prototypes. It was absolutely intended for production. They took it very seriously, um, indeed. Um, but, you know, this would have been produced at about the sort of time that... Um, Porsche was getting itself into quite a lot of financial trouble. Um, it wasn't building cars economically. All the cars that it was building, you know, things like, you know, all the cars, you know, the 924-based cars, the 928 cars, the 911s, they're all very, they're all getting old, uh, long in the tooth. Um, Porsche weren't building their cars economically. And I suspect that this was just a bridge too far. But, you know, that's where we first learned about the idea of a um, four-door Porsche coupe, for want of a better word. Um, I, I just did, I, you know, the reason I'm glad it didn't get made is I think I didn't like the way it looked because it looked kind of like they tried to make it look like a sort of stretch 911. They did, yeah, yeah. Um, and it just didn't work visually to me at all. Um, and I fear it might have failed. Um, so and got Porsche into even more trouble than it was already in. So that's why. I, but it, but it was good. You know, if, you, if you've not seen it, go and look up a Porsche 989. Um, pictures of it all over the internet um really really interesting idea um but yeah i think 
but but and it, and it's inter- it's interesting also to me that it took them twenty years before they wanted to you know think about revisiting it. Mm. Yeah, it's. I, I think you're right about the way that car looks. It's almost stretch nine nine sixy looking, isn't it? With round headlights. Yeah, not a not a sort of effortlessly pretty car that. But then, nor was the first Panamera, was it? Um, okay. Well, unless you want to tell us about any other cancelled. No, cars, no, I don't. Do, do, we'll... do you know what? Because, because there are quite a few of them. There, there are lots in America as well. So maybe um, mm. we'll save them up and do another podcast about those. Yeah, and if there are any that you think we're going to miss, let us know, and we'll look into yeah. them. Oh, um, there are plenty we've missed, I'm, I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure. No doubt about it. Not, not least, um, Porsche quite recently just released images and details of a whole load of cars, um, sort of design studies that they elected not to put into production, didn't they? Um, and there's some really fascinating stuff in there, so maybe we can dig into those a little bit more. Um, good. Well, we'll leave that one there. Um, remember to come back next week. Uh, we'll have another podcast for you. But before then, go and download the Intercooler app. Just search the Intercooler, uh, whichever app store you use. Uh, download the app. Start your one-month free trial. Um, we think you'll like it. But, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you again next week. No to it. All the best. Bye-bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.